It's unrelated things. Greetings and welcome to episode number 14 of Unrelated Things. This is the podcast where I talk about things that interest or irritate me that I've seen in the news or on the web lately. And it's where I share some of my favorite things with you. You can find about find out more about Unrelated Things or make a donation at unrelatedthings.net. You can follow the dollar sign on unrelatedthings.net to find our affiliate links, or you can support Unrelated Things by buying Unrelated Things, including flowers, music, batteries, or trampoline parts. You can provide feedback at unrelatedthings at gmail.com, and you can follow Unrelated Things on Twitter or on Facebook. A note about this episode, I will be battling with my soundboard this episode as I have deleted all of the clips from my soundboard unknowingly and am trying to run my clips directly out of iTunes from my iPad, which means a bigger battle than usual. So prepare your ears for a relentless assault of sounds that are even more unprofessionally included than usual. On to the meditation and medication. Top My top pick for this episode, typically my top pick is something that I really like, that I really think that you should check out, but this top pick is something that really annoys me. Um, this top pick is about a story that I saw online. I happened to see it at Mashable.com, written by Brian Korber. When nine-year-old Grayson Bruce told his mom that he was being bullied at his school, For wearing a My Little Pony backpack, she did what most parents would. She informed the school of the abuse. Instead of addressing the bullies, though, the North Carolina school told Noreen Bruce that her son was no longer allowed to bring his bag to school. Grayson had revealed some of the details about the bullying. Quote, They're taking it a little too far. They're punching me, pushing me down calling me horrible names, stuff that really shouldn't happen. And he is absolutely right that those things really shouldn't happen. And what really shouldn't happen, that part of this story that annoys me the most, is the school's response. The school's response is to further blame the child for his his treatment by other children, where their response should be to take care of the problem of the children who are acting out in the wrong and negative ways. I think it's really obvious. And I I don't envy teachers and school administrators for trying to keep some semblance of order in the schools. It has to be a very, very difficult job. And I realize that Many schools have clothing standards um, to prevent disruptive messages and disruptive clothing, however they may define that. I think this is a really clear-cut case where the backpack isn't the problem. 
the child wearing the backpack isn't the problem. It's the, the bullies that are calling the child names, pushing the child, punching the child, quote-unquote, as he said, stuff that really shouldn't happen. Take care of the stuff that really shouldn't happen. Um, it, it's, it's outrageous the way that people will blame the victim and will say, well, we can't allow the victim to do what they're doing because it, it creates an environment where other people act out improperly. That's ridiculous. Take care of the other people that are acting out improperly. Take care of the behaviors that are wrong. All you're doing is you're letting them win. You're letting them say, this, ch- this fellow student of mine is unacceptable because of how he looks or what he wears or what he thinks. And you're saying, you're right. We're going to take that item out of the equation. We're going to also tell him that he is wrong to be wearing that in this environment. It's outrageous, and it makes me makes me really angry. So after the um, family was alerted to this, and after the school's irresponsible response, the Bruce family created a support page for Grayson on Facebook. They're using the hashtag hashtag support for Grayson to spread awareness online. And that is also the name of the Facebook page, Support for Grayson. So go and check that out. And it's really interesting. I, I've intentionally not named the school, though it's public knowledge if anyone wanted to dig that out. But there's a, a, a secondary bullying danger online when something like this comes up and the response or the respondents to it overreact or react in negative bullying ways. So I was really, really interested to see this message on the Support for Grayson Facebook page from Support for Grayson. Quote, important message. It has come to our attention that individuals may be approaching the school and some of this may not be constructive or may be construed as bullying as well. Please be aware that the family is working very hard behind the scenes to resolve this and does not condone any communication with the school on their behalf at this time. We are simply looking for support for Grayson and his family. Please do not do anything negative to the school, teachers, or administrators. Two wrongs do not make a right. So it's really encouraging to me to see the family of Grayson who, who put up the support for Grayson's site to really be keenly aware of what people might be doing thinking that they are supporting Grayson but might be acting out in, in ways that are negative. Um, so really, I think, you know, a good cause, a, a item to be aware of and to be angry about, be angry about the school's response. I think the school should hear positively and constructively that people disagree with their approach. But I think that as often, often goes online, we really need to be careful of the mob mentality when, when, 
you know, a big group of people rightly get outraged about something, we really need to temper and be careful about the ways we res- we express that outrage, especially on this topic. To to bully people because you are outraged by bullying is just unfathomable. And now you're supposed to just go ahead and move on. Moving on. A story from consumers.com. A 52-year-old Pennsylvania man faces a number of criminal charges after allegedly driving to the pickup window at Wendy's naked. Not once, not twice, but three times. Police say the first incident took place around 11 p.m. on March 12th when the man drove to the pickup window, turned on the interior light of his car, and looked at his lap. A female employee told police she then realized the man was naked. Two days later, the man returned at approximately the same time and handed a different female employee his money. She then noticed he was naked and yelled for a co-worker. About 30 minutes later, the man returned to the fast food restaurant. This time, he did not place an order. Instead, he drove straight to the window and once again turned on the interior light of his car and looked at his lap. Employees refused to open the window. The man has been charged with three counts of open lewdness, three counts of disorderly conduct, and three counts of driving with a suspended license. Boy, howdy. On to some Apple news. Apple has filed a patent for wireless iPhone camera remote. This one was a bit interesting to me because of the potential use of it in a future Apple product. The patent is spotted by Apple Insider Details, a remote control that communicates with an iPhone or iPod using Bluetooth or Wi-Fi. Apart from the expected controls for taking photos and videos, it is also depicted in the application as having a screen. This could be used as a live viewfinder that displays the same image that the iPhone's camera is seeing in real time, or as a screen to playback photos and videos. Apart from simple applications like self-portraits and group shots, the remote also could be used to keep tabs on the state of the iPhone. For example, once you have taken a photo, the remote could give you confirmation that it was successful with a visual indication such as a dedicated light. The remote screen can be used to edit and delete images as required, though there are several ways to trigger an iPhone shutter release remotely, for example, using the headset's volume buttons, they don't generally give you immediate visual feedback on a separate screen. This patent was filed in 2009. While not all Apple patent filings end up becoming tangible products, the iPhone remote seems like a fairly easy and useful product to bring to market. What I think is very unlikely about this patent filing is that Apple would create a standalone device that would just be an a camera remote device with a screen. What I do think is much more likely is that Apple would incorporate such an application into the rumored iWatch. Um, having that remote built in to, to a wristwatch device would be really, really interesting. For the vast majority of, of photography, it would not be useful because the vast majority of photography, people are going to have their phone in their hand while they're taking a picture and won't need a remote. But for any photos taken needing a remote, 
where the camera is is set up somewhere or placed up on a tripod, um, it could be really, really useful to have this type of remote built in to an iWatch style device. So I found the, this um, patent application to provide some really, really interesting potential for an additional function for an iWatch. One of the biggest yeah. deals ever in the history of ever. Well, we'll have to wait and see if the iWatch turns into one of the biggest deals ever in the history of ever. If, in fact, Apple ever releases one. Bill Donahue, president of the Catholic League and a vocal opponent of LGBT rights, said Wednesday he wants to march in the 2014 New York City Pride Parade under a banner reading, Straight is Great. Donahue made the remarks during an interview with conservative talk show host Steve Malsberg, in which he criticized activists for protesting bans on LGBT groups marching in the New York and Boston St. Patrick's Day parades and corporate sponsors that withdrew their support of the events over the policies. Quote, are they going to let me do it or not? I'm waiting to see what they want to say, Donahue said, explaining the Pride Parade organizers require participants to carry LGBT signs. Quote, all right, you can disagree with their rules, but that's their parade. Why don't they respect us when it comes to the St. Patrick's Day parade? Unquote. When reached by phone Wednesday night, organizers of the parade at the Heritage of Pride, Inc. said that Donahue had not yet filled out a formal application to participate in the parade and that his request was made by email. Britton Hoge, the organization's operations manager, told BuzzFeed a decision has not been made on permitting Donahue to march under the banner he proposed, but that they, quote, will be issuing a statement probably sometime tomorrow. So I find this to be rather interesting. I hope that the organizers of this parade allow him to march. Be inclusive. Don't be exclusive. Um, if they have specific rules about the signs, then certainly they have an opportunity to refine his message to something that he and they both find uh, acceptable. Um, but I, I personally would not see any issue with him marching, you know, under a banner that says straight is great. Uh, you know, have a group march right behind him that says, and so is gay. So I don't think his message takes away from the message of the Pride Parade. And I feel like they should try to be as inclusive as possible and set the example that they are pressuring the leadership of the St. Patrick's Day parades to also adopt. This year's major St. Patrick's Day parades in New York and Boston were marked by the withdrawal of corporate sponsors. I know there were a couple of uh, big beer companies. I think they were Heineken and Coors that withdrew sponsorship from the parades. And both the mayors of Boston and the mayor of New York City uh, refused to march in the parades. And also Guinness dropped its sponsorship of the parade in New York um, just a day before the parade kicked off. So I, I appreciate the pressure that 
these corporate sponsors and the mayors are putting on having the St. Patrick's Day parades be inclusive. And I support the gentleman's attempt to march in the Pride Parade and hope they are as inclusive as well. I don't even know where to start. We've already started, but we're so let's just continue from here. Sony orders their first original TV state TV series for the PlayStation. Joining streaming television services like Netflix and Amazon, Sony's PlayStation Network has commissioned its first original TV series. And I saw this story on money.cnn.com by Brian Stelter. The company said Wednesday that it had ordered 10 one-hour episodes of a series called Powers, a drama based on the comic book series of the same name. It will be produced by one of Sony PlayStation's corporate sisters, the Sony Pictures Television Studio. Sony first signaled last summer that it would pursue original TV programming for the PlayStation Network. The strategy mirrors that of its biggest video game console rival, Microsoft which started to experiment with TV-style programming for Xbox Live subscribers years ago and has increased its investment in the space lately. One of the shows that Microsoft is developing is based on the Xbox game franchise, Halo. find this story really, really interesting for the future of television and the future of television networks um, with the growth of real high-quality programming on Netflix and Amazon and Hulu, original programming. Um, I, I see this significant shift coming. In five to ten years, the major video entertainment networks just might be PlayStation, Amazon, Hulu, and Netflix, relegating the current major networks to a second tier. Of course, with the common mergers and buyouts, in the industry, the likes of Comcast are just as likely to end up owning everything and remaining dominant in delivering video entertainment to the public. I think you just nailed it. The world's first Apple reseller is due to close this month after 37 years of selling Apple products. This story is by Benjamin Mayo of 9to5Mac.com. The first ever Apple-authorized reseller is going to end business after over 36 years of trading. Located in Minneapolis, Team Electronics, which later changed its name to First Tech, was shipped Apple's first batch of computers in the late 1970s. It has sold Apple devices for more than three decades, celebrating its 35th anniversary in 2012. However, on March 29, the shop will close due to shrinking margins. Product manager Fred Evans says the company has been outstripped by national distributors who often sold machines below cost. Quote, these vendors have basically been willing to sell the computer equipment below cost to go after the national service business. It became increasingly difficult for a brick-and-mortar to offer personalized service when we can't make any money off the product you're selling. It has been a dramatic change in that regard the last couple years in particular, Evans said. 
Apple's own retail expansion has also constrained FirstTech's customer base over the years, as well as impacting many other Apple resellers. I bought my first few Apple computers from resellers. One here in the Northeast was called Computer Town. But as some of the big boxes expanded and Apple computers ended up in them, and Apple then expanded its own retail, which is phenomenally successful, um, the opportunities for the independent stores just became fewer and fewer, and it made them really hard, hard to get by and hard to continue their business. In fact, Apple now runs five of its own stores in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, the same market served by First Tech. Despite this, Evan said that a relationship between the two companies was friendly and productive. Apparently, Apple stores would refer customers to First Tech regarding repairs of older Mac models that most retail stores would not want to deal with. So there's still a niche. There's still a niche for Apple-related or even Apple-centric independent stores to, uh, to exist. There's one down the street from where I live. I believe it's called iStore. Haven't been in it yet, but I should uh, stop in and check it out. Um, <clears throat> so, one of the first stores, or the first store, in fact, to resell Apple computers is now closing its doors. I'm going to move on now. It's horrid. It is horrid. So I am late to the game, literally. I bought a PS3 a couple months ago, just as the PS4 was announced and and about to come on sale. Um, Price was my major limiting factor before now. Uh, But there's a number of games that were out on the PS3 that I used to listen to people talk about very fondly that I want to play. So it makes sense for me to buy into the PS3 now at at what's, you know, the end of its life as the primary console that that Sony has going Um, and buy into these games when they're now half the price of when they launched. So uh, I'm, I'm... able to get some great games for really amazing prices and have the great experience of playing those games um, just a lot later than everybody else. So I recently finished playing through Bioshock Infinite on the PS3. Infinite is the first of the Bioshock series that I've ever played, so I don't have any earlier context for the characters or the gameplay, but it was not relevant to me enjoying playing Bioshock Infinite as the story isn't really linear from the previous Bioshock games. I am not a skilled gamer, and first-person shooters aren't my favorite style of game. Um, I don't don't mind some first-person shooter elements in a game, but it has to have a mix of other elements like solving puzzles, um, you know, figuring out pathways, other other gameplay elements to balance out the sh- the shooting, I you know running and shooting for me is just more like running and dying. It doesn't make for 
a, a lot of fun. And while Bioshock Infinite was a little heavier on the shooting than I would prefer, the immersive world and its variety and the variety of enemies really kept me hooked on this game. And even more engrossing was that it was all held together by a compelling storyline. It also didn't hurt that there were lots of opportunities for me to find or get ammo. Um, the, the game dynamic where Elizabeth, your, your kind of uh, partner, the person you're interacting with and helping to save while she is also helping to save you, um, the dynamic where you're in mid-battle and she is scouring the area for more ammo and more health for you and you can easily retrieve that from her um, was a pretty good dynamic that helped keep me going through the game. Also being able to go to the vending machine and buy ammunition when you could find the vending machine uh, is also a great uh, dynamic that just kept it moving at a decent pace for me. So for anybody who hasn't played, heard of, known Bioshock Infinite, in Bioshock Infinite, you travel through a floating city on a rescue mission to save Elizabeth. You fight off enemies, you collect ammo and loot, and you move between separate floating city sections via skylines, which are kind of like hanging monorails. You, you have a, a device where you can jump up and hang from these things and actually slide down them to get to other connected parts of the city. You also can get onto zeppelins and floating barges to make your way between some areas. Elizabeth has special powers as your companion and can open up tears in space-time. She can pick locks, and as I said, she can provide ammo and health during battles. Um, you also get special powers during the game. You get what are known as vigors, which give you... Um, special kind of magical powers to do things. I certainly was no expert in using vigors, but there were some that were very beneficial to, to help me battle through the game, especially during some of the harder and bigger battles. One vigor that was particularly useful to me, and I can't remember what it was called, but it would allow you to temporarily take over a an enemy and for a certain limited duration of time that enemy actually would would fight on your side and it was like 30 seconds or something and they would fight against the other people that were trying to kill you so that that particular vigor came in very very handy to uh get me through this game it was a really really enjoyable game to play it does make me interested in knowing um, how the previous Bioshock games were and potentially, you know, checking them out. Um, again, like I said up front, one of the best or the best and most compelling reason why I ended up getting a PS3 after the release or as the PS4 was being released was uh, to save money on all of this. So I got Bioshock on sale through the PlayStation Network for $15. There have been a lot of other special deals on the game as well, including free availability with a PlayStation Plus subscription. That's now since expired. 
I think currently you can play Tomb Raider for free with a PlayStation Plus subscription. Um, I really recommend the game, Bioshock Infinite, and I may replay it again in the future. Definitely has some potential for replayability. Look at that! I'm just looking for pants. Looking for pants. That guy at Wendy's, I don't think he was looking for pants, but he should have been looking for pants. Now on to something different. Uh, uh, another um, entertainment item that I've been catching up on has been Falling Skies. So Falling Skies follows a group of civilians and fighters fleeing post-apocalyptic Boston following an alien invasion that devastated the planet's planet six months before the series begins. The series stars Noah Wiley as Tom Mason, a former Boston University university history professor who becomes the second in command of the second Massachusetts militia regiment. So I just wrapped up watching season three on Amazon prime and a note about Amazon prime. I've had Amazon prime for quite a long time, bought into Amazon prime for the savings on, um, ship on shipping charges and did not use any of the video portion of Amazon Prime for a very long time. Um, recently, especially now that I can get it on my PlayStation 3, I have been uh, using it a little bit more and finding it to be more useful. Um, debating in my head whether I should talk about the pending in price increase for uh, Amazon Prime, so I will say this. Totally not excited about the price increase. Seriously debating in my head whether I will cancel Amazon Prime. The free shipping on Amazon Prime items, you know, purchased from Amazon is still pretty compelling. Um, extra $20 a year. I don't know if Amazon Prime has the video content. In fact, I know for sure they don't have the video content to hold on to me for such a price increase if this wasn't still linked to free shipping. Having them both together may be just compelling enough to keep me hanging on. In addition, Amazon Prime just announced that they are picking up five shows that they had um, run pilots on to go to series one of those five shows looks really interesting, and I'll talk about that another time. So, again, to get back to the topic that I should be talking about, um, Falling Skies. I just wrapped up watching season three on Amazon Prime, and the show is interesting and entertaining with various twists and turns as a military civilian group battles the alien invaders which have developed various methods of controlling humans through parasitic connections. Whether via harnesses, which resemble large centipede-like creatures attached to the spine, or through small silverfish-like parasites that live inside the body, the aliens can compel humans to follow their will and act to sabotage the humans and support the alien occupation. These elements of the program are really interesting because... Clearly, you can tell who's possessed when they have the the centipede-like creature attached to, to their spine. And 
that type of possession are is used for direct enslavement where the aliens are using humans, mostly children, to um, be their slaves and do do work like uh, it resembles mining, even though it's not necessarily mining. It's collecting collecting metal scraps, collecting raw materials, so the aliens can process them and, and do what they need to do, whatever they're whatever they're building. Uh, the this particular show is pretty heavy on the military war angle, as the humans battle the aliens in various circumstances. The effects are great, and Falling Skies is the best humans versus aliens program since the rebooted Battlestar Galactica series ended. If you like the genre, it's definitely worth watching. In addition to Noah Wiley, key cast members include Will Patton and Colin Cunningham. Also, Terry O'... I wrote Terry O'Quill, but I have a feeling I intended to write Terry O'Quinn from Lost and Matt Frewer who played Taggart on Eureka, have to have a Eureka connection. They both have significant roles in Seasons 2 and Seasons 3. Falling Skies airs on TNT in the U.S. and is available on iTunes and on Amazon. Mark my words. And now you're supposed to just go ahead and move on. So I'm going to go ahead and move on, and I'm going to uh, move on and move back in, a, in, in one way. So I'm going to talk about the season four finale, and this season four finale was of the TV show Haven, and the season four finale aired quite a while back. Um, ever since Eureka ended, have to have a Eureka connection, and Colin Ferguson was cast on Sci-Fi's Haven. I've been catching up on watching Haven, which previously I had not been watching. Haven is based on the Stephen King novel called The Colorado Kid, and it follows characters in the town of Haven, Maine, as they battle against powers bestowed on the town's residents, over which the residents have minimal control. Typically a power, which they commonly refer to as a trouble, will manifest in someone who is stressed in some way, and the person with the trouble will often have no idea that they are causing bizarre and dangerous things to happen. The main characters are police officer Nathan, played by Lucas Bryant, smuggler and restaurant owner Duke, played by Eric Balfour, and FBI agent Audrey Parker, played by Emily Rose. All of the characters undergo various transformations through the series, but none more than Audrey Parker, who consistently evolves as more aspects of her past are revealed as the show progresses. I recommend you all watch Haven if you have not seen the series yet. The characters have enough depth to keep the stories interesting as they move through plots which are usually compelling, although some episodes have less punch than others. There is a particular arc in the series about the Skinwalker, which is pretty compelling. The best episode ever, however, was the season finale for season four. Season four introduces the character of William, who's played by Colin Ferguson, and he becomes central to the latest twist in Audrey Parker's history. The first part of the season four finale, and if you're going to watch through, I'm going to spoil the season four finale. So uh, note, if you want to watch this without any spoilers, 
skip ahead for five minutes and you should be good to go. So the first part of the season four finale, which is season four, episode 13, has a compelling storyline in which a baby is causing death throughout the town each time he cries. The anguish of the characters is palpable as they unsuccessfully try various ways to stop the trouble and as innocent people continue to die. Finally, the most dramatic of solutions is the only one left, and Duke is called on to use his trouble to permanently resolve the issue. It is not only the best episode of Haven, but is among the three or four best scenes ever in my movie or TV viewing experience. So Duke's trouble, just to spoil further, is that if Duke kills a person with a trouble, that trouble will no longer be present in the person's family. Troubles frequently pass down from parent to child. And when Duke kills you, your children lose the ability. So that turns out to be the solution. But the power of the first part of the season four finale puts it in the number one episode of me, despite the unevenness of the rest of the episode. As the episode moves to the climax of the confrontation between William and Audrey, it loses its footing and it falls into some poor execution of it, of pretty interesting material. Conceptually, the confrontation is interesting, but the execution put me in the mind of the Tiki episode of The Brady Bunch. Look out, Greg! Or any episode of Gilligan's Island. As an example, when four specific individuals were required to stand in certain spots to open the portal to banish William, and two were unwilling, it fell into a situation where the solution was, we'll just stand behind you and hold you on the right spot. And it wrapped up with a final twist that while not out of bounds, was poorly developed. So, an uneven episode, but still due to the power of the first part of the episode and the interesting concepts in the second part of the episode, definitely my favorite episode of Haven ever. So, Haven is a very good show. You should watch it. Uh, Surprisingly... Uh, Sci-Fi has actually requested, I think, a 20, 24 or 26 more episodes of Haven, which is pretty amazing for a network that often will, will sign for a 13-episode season and sometimes will, you know, shrink down and order only, you know, six episodes of a series. So good to see that Haven will continue um and definitely if you haven't checked out haven in the past go and check it out he's just not camera friendly don't know about that uh story from consumerist by mary beth quirk as the saying goes good things come to those who wake well maybe it's wait But in this case, either one works for a guy who found a lottery ticket worth $1 million while cleaning up leaves in the aftermath of Hurricane Sandy a year ago. The 27-year-old man came upon the ticket, and not being one to leave a poor, defenseless bit of paper on its own, he adopted the orphan lottery prize. Quote, my coworker was blowing the leaves and I was collecting them when I saw the ticket hiding between wet leaves, the lucky guy tells the New York Post. I still don't know what made me pick it up. 
Once he did, he saw that all three numbers on the win 1,000 a week for life scratch card were winners. Whoever threw it away probably didn't realize there was a prize, he explained. I took it home and showed it to my mom, but she didn't believe it. After the New York Lottery Customer Service Center reopened in the wake of power outages from Sandy, he finally turned in his ticket to get verified. The process of making sure he was well and truly a winner took so long, he says he forgot about it. Be hard to forget about a million-dollar prize that, that could be yours just for someone to say yes, but he says he forgot all about it. That is until three weeks ago when he got a happy phone call that no one else had claimed the ticket, which meant he got to be the keeper. So kudos to the man with the rake and the bag uh, picking up leaves who found a million-dollar lottery ticket and was able to claim the prize. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. This is an oh-my-gosh story for sure. When faced with certain challenges of people trying to get driver's license in New Jersey, New Jersey's recommended solution is that those particular individuals that are challenged by the current system should change their names. The people of New Jersey, let me see where this story is from. This story is also from Consumers.com. As I've said in the past, a great source of uh, stories to interest and irritate me. This one was written by Chris Moran. The people of New Jersey represent just about every racial and ethnic group you could imagine. So not everyone is going to fit into the standard mold of first name, middle initial, last name. And even though state authorities are well aware of this fact, they would rather have drivers legally change their names than update the state's outdated license database. In 2009, the New Jersey Motor Vehicle Commission's suggestion for a man whose last name is Dello Russo which, which two words, which the state's computer spits out as D period Russo, was to have him spend $1,000 to legally have his last name changed so that it was one word. The Motor Vehicle Commission couldn't even offer him the option of hyphenating the name. Ultimately, it agreed to squash the two halves of his last name into one, but now his license doesn't exactly match his other forms of identification. You would think that in nearly five years, the state might have improved something but you'd be wrong. Just ask the woman who recently moved from Pennsylvania to New Jersey only to find out that her first name, Hao Ling, two words, had been changed to Hao L, period. Because in spite of all the Mary Anns and Anne Marie's in New Jersey, the MVC's computers still haven't figured out that some people have two parts to their first names. When the MVC clerk explained that the computers turned two-part first names into a first name and a middle initial, Hao Ling asked if they could just run the two halves together into one name for her license. She then went back and spoke to another lady and returned, insisting that I would, and this is her speaking about what was going on in, as she interacted with the, uh, the clerk, quote, she then went back and spoke to another lady and returned, insisting that I would have to get my name combined on my documentation in order for them to consider this as a first name she recalls, in a post-9-11 world where everyone but NG New Jersey MVC seems to care about 
all legal documents, mat documents matching names, I began to fret. Having no other recourse, she took the How L period license and left the MVC office. This is ridiculous that a known issue like this has been let to persist. I recently moved to New Jersey. I recently had the... It was neither pleasure nor displeasure. It lived up pretty much to my expectations um, of visiting the New Jersey MVC to get my new driver's license and had no issues with, uh, with first or last names that had multiple parts, um, but did experience the stereotypical... DMV slash MVC, wait in this line, wait in that line, step over here, step over there, um, that departments of motor vehicles in the U.S. and potentially worldwide have become famous for. So get it together, New Jersey. Straighten that out so people can have IDs that match each other so they don't get into other challenges down the road. Okay, I'm doing it. Do it, New Jersey. MI5 Whistleblower launches Defense Fund for Whistleblowers. This story from Corey Doctorow of BoingBoing.net. Annie Macon, M-A-C-H-O-N, an ex-MI5 spy who left the agency after blowing the whistle on the agency's illegal activities, has launched a fund to offer financial support to other whistleblowers called the Courage Fund to Protect, protect Journalistic Sources. Macon left MI5 and disclosed that the agency had illegal, illegally spied upon British government ministers, that it had lied in order to send innocent people to jail for bombings in Ireland, had conducted illegal wiretaps, wire and had worked with MI6 in an assassination attempt on Gaddafi. Kudos to you, Annie Macon, for standing up for what was right and disclosing illegal activities from a government agency. And kudos to you for starting this fund. She announced the fund at the 30th Chaos Communications Congress in Hamburg with a stirring, scathing speech that took governments to task for invasive bulk spying. Quote, it is incredibly corrosive to the human spirit to know that everything you say, everything you do, even if you just want to have a private conversation with your mother, is being listened to, she said. Now we all know we are being listened to and surveyed in this amazingly panopticon-like manner. People like Snowden and Manning must be given support, she said, or civil, civil liberties will continue to be eroded. Quote, so many journalists write so many stories, but what happens to the whistleblowers? They're left swinging in the wind, she said. If they can't survive the process of coming forward, then we will not have these people. So, uh, amazing story and an amazing person for her to actually come out and be a whistleblower. Uh, blowing the whistle on a very high-level government uh, entity um, with far-reaching far reaching reach. Um, and 
you know, genuinely with the ability to destroy lives. So kudos for coming out, for blowing the whistle, and for creating a support group so more people can do the right thing and more people can challenge government entities, corporate entities, when they are breaking the law. How would you feel if your donkey meat snack turned out to be fox meat instead? At some Walmart, Walmart, Walmart stores in China, customers found this out. Uh, some Walmart stores in China after tests showed that what was labeled as five-spice donkey meat was actually tainted with meat of other animals, had to pull the item from the shelves and refund customers who bought the meat while it tries to figure out how the mix-up happened. It's bad timing for Walmart's reputation in China as the company is planning on opening 110 new stores in the country over the next few years. But shoppers could be put off by such an incident because, as we all know, what the label says is what you should get. Well, it's not like everyone in China is chowing down on donkeys. It is a popular snack in some areas. In 2011, China slaughtered 2.4 million donkeys for consumption, so ostensibly someone is buying the stuff and wouldn't be pleased to have it be any other kind of meat. We are deeply sorry for this whole affair, said Walmart's China president and CEO, Greg Ferran. Quote, it is a deep lesson that we need to continue to increase investment in supplier management. I'll say it's like the tainted meat scandal that Europe had with the horse meat ending up in the beef. Um, you know, I'm a vegetarian, so I don't have any uh, particular problem with, you know, or risk at ending up with the wrong meat in my meat. Um, but I do, I do strongly support accurate label packaging. I think we all should know what we're buying. We should be able to be confident that what it says on the label is what we're getting. When it says we're getting donkey meat, we should be very confident that in fact we are getting donkey meat. And I know there's uh, some of you out there listening that, that think, oh, donkey meat, that's disgusting. Why would somebody eat that? And you know, being a vegetarian, my whole look at, or my whole take on that is that an animal is an animal and quote unquote meat is meat. And I don't see anything more or less disgusting in eating a pig or eating a cow or eating a dog or eating a donkey. It is from my perspective in my philosophy on the subject, it is all equivalent. All right, cool. Here is potentially the travesty of the week. What would happen if one of your favorite products changed the feature that made it your favorite in the first place? That's the frustration that uses a pine saw. That's the frustration that users of Pine Sol face now that the company has changed the product's fragrance. The company blames the pine oil shortage and promises to offer the original scent online. It was a tough decision, but we did have to change the formula of our original Pine Sol due to a lower amount of pine oil available, 
explains a company representative on the Pine Sol Facebook page. If you thought that a cleaning solution couldn't inspire this level of devotion, well, you're wrong. Complaints are a regular fixture on the Pine Sol Facebook page, and a change.org petition reveals consumers' devotion to the product. First, Pine Sol creator, whom I'm not sure exactly who you are, uh, but I think possibly you might just need to change the name of your product. If your product is called Pine Sol, but doesn't contain any pine oil or pine scent. But in any event, I digress. Back to the story. There were um, two quotes included in the story, and they were, or maybe it's one quote that is split into two. In any event, this quote is in all caps. I don't really want to yell, so just imagine me yelling. This whole world changes. Nothing is perfect. That's the only part of the quote that's not in, in, in uh, capital letters. The rest all is. Except original pine saw, exclamation point. I do not get mad easy. Things happen for a reason, and we can't change everything. I'm 37 and have been a faithful, addicted customer to original scent pine saw. I use it everywhere for everything. I will fight this stupid move you guys did till I'm too old to move. Then I'll die and come back and haunt your ass and keep fighting from my grave. It's bullshit, you know it. Now change it back. Almost sounds like someone not having fun and poking fun, but hard to tell, hard to tell. You know, tough online sometimes to uh, try to deduce someone's motivation, but I think this was a genuinely angry PineSol user. After PineSol, the company that creates PineSol, took the pine out of the pine saw. Are you kidding me? Not kidding. Smash and grab robbers hit Dutch Apple store overnight. Apple's retail store in the Dutch city of Harlem was the site of a smash and grab. People living in the area of the store claimed to hear a loud bang in the middle of the night, which likely represented the sound of a car hitting the front of the Apple store. The car that was used as a key to open the store was left behind as the thieves allegedly used two scooters to escape the crime scene. Dutch police are still investigating the robbery and the store will remain closed to the public until the investigation is completed. And this story is older, so that investigation may or may not be completed by now, but I'm sure the store is no longer closed. Police report only a small amount of merchandise was taken. And that's perhaps the funniest part of this story. Well, of course, only a small amount of merchandise was taken. They used scooters to escape the scene of the crime. They couldn't take a large amount of merchandise with them. Uh, fortunately for them, many of Apple's devices are small enough, so you could get several of those devices and uh, actually quite a few of those devices to fit on your scooter. But you're not getting away with several iMac computers if your getaway car isn't a car but is a scooter. And smash and grabs are common and there was another smash and grab occurring on this side of 
the ocean. Police in Newington, Connecticut are on the lookout for the alleged banana bandit who apparently had such a Jones for the fruit that he took drastic measures to get what he craved. Cops showed up at the gas station in the wee hours of the morning upon a report of an active burglar alarm and found the entry doors had taken quite a beating. After watching the surveillance video, police saw the suspect pull up in a station wagon and repeatedly back into the doors until he smashed an opening in the glass. He then walked into the store, unmasked, and apparently making no effort to hide his identity, and grabbed a banana from the shelf and went to town. After peeling and eating the object of his desire, he simply walked out of the store and left in the same vehicle he used as a battering ram. That We have complete and utter freedom of speech uh, for the most part. But that has nothing to do with this story. Nothing at all. From io9.com by Esther Inglis Arkell. Many people have heard the old metaphor about the frog. If you put one in boiling water, it will hop out. But if you gradually increase the temperature of the water, it will let itself be boiled. It's meant to warn us about slowly developing dangers in addition to obvious ones. Which is a good thing. As metaphors go, however, the boiling frog works. But step into the realm of reality and the metaphor breaks down. Dr. Victor Hutchison at the University of Oklahoma dispelled the myth when he studied frogs' reaction to temperature changes in water. He followed the procedure outlined for a proper frog boiling, put a frog in cold water, and gradually warmed the water up. He stopped well before the boiling point. The frogs most definitely did jump out when the water got too warm for them. So that aspect of the metaphor breaks down. Thankfully, that's as far as he needed to go to dispel the myth, and he did not uh, put frogs into boiling water to see whether or not they jumped out. It may be possible for a frog to jump out of boiling water if they hit the water and immediately jumped um, and cleared themselves of the water, but more likely the frog would start to boil so quickly that its muscles would not be able to react fast enough to get out of the water. So in all likelihood, without any testing that I am aware of, um, a frog would not necessarily be able to jump out of water that was already boiling. So the whole metaphor does break down, although its concept is useful to try to warn us about dangers that gradually increase and overwhelm us before we realize it than those dangers that are clear and obviously dangers from the get-go. But let's kind of get all that fun, quirky stuff out of there. I'm not so sure that was fun, quirky stuff. But here's a story about uh, Roku. One of Apple's TV's biggest competitors is Roku. It's a small set-top box that similarly streams content from various providers. The company is taking its concept to the next level with Roku TV, full-size television sets that actually integrate Roku technology inside. TV makers TCL and Hisense are the first two manufacturers with models to show at the consumer, or models that they did show at the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. Roku is offering the Roku TV license to other manufacturers. They provide a reference design platform 
and software stack to enable TV makers to integrate Roku's technology directly into the TV set. Roku TV provides a unified home screen on the TV that enables users to watch content, including movies and TV shows, or listen to music. So Roku is actually jumping into the full-size TV set, uh, at least um, branding and including their hardware and software built into the TV set. This is something that a lot of people have been speculating um, that Apple might do, but that Apple itself has really not given very much indication that they are likely to to follow that path. Um, in fact, a very recent story said that when Steve Jobs was alive at a retreat for Apple executives and Apple employees, someone specifically asked about Apple potential for creating a television set. And Steve Jobs said that the margins were terrible and that people did not replace televisions often enough for it to be a worthwhile market for Apple to pursue. So it remains to be seen if Apple ever does um, get into that marketplace. I think there is a niche for Apple to get in and be successful in that marketplace. But those challenges, as mentioned by Steve Jobs, are certainly real. I think Apple could get into the TV set marketplace with a product that was like $2,000 to $10,000 and get a tiny niche, but it would be very hard for them to profitably get into the consumer-level television set market. If you want a sign that humanity's still got it going on. Here is a story about Mountain Dew Cheetos. No, actually, I'm going to hold off on the Mountain Dew Cheetos story. Breaking news. Uh, and actually, it's really breaking news because I actually took a break between taping, taping, recording the earlier portion of this podcast and the current portion of this podcast. And in that time, which was actually a couple days, um, there's an update to the story number one, to my top pick story about Grayson, who was unable to bring his backpack to school because other people would beat him up when he had it. So a uh, good update here. Under public pressure, the superintendent of the Buncombe County Schools has capitulated saying, quote, Buncombe County Schools administrators released a joint statement. Actually, that obviously isn't the quote part. Uh, Thursday, saying they would work with Bruce, which is Grayson's mother, to make, quote, a safety transition plan and allowance for Grayson to bring the book back to school. Quote, we have appreciated the opportunity to meet with the Bruce family and discuss the issues. We sincerely regret that the issue of being told to leave the book back at home was perceived as blaming Grayson. While that was not the intent, the perception became reality. We support Grayson bringing the book back to school, unquote, the statement said. So that was the school administration uh, of the county. So hopefully they get that safety transition plan put into place 
and Grayson is safe at school as every child should be safe at school. Uh, you know, children pick on one another. It's part of growing up. But in a school situation, the adults need to be very sensitive and very careful about making sure that people aren't bullied. It's a, it's a real thing, and the perpetrators need to be taught and need to be punished when necessary, and the victims need to be protected through those types of actions. So I'm happy to report on that breaking news update to the story about Grayson bringing his My Little Pony book back to school. If you want a sign that humanity's still got it going on. Happens occasionally, and that is it. But now on to Mountain Dew Cheetos. Mountain Dew Cheetos are a reality in Japan. Let's see. Another consumer story from Lauren Northrup. Strange and magical things come out of Frito-Lay Japan. Things that we in Frito-Lay's home country never get to see. The latest bit of corporate synergy snack food horror to hit the shelves across the Pacific? Mountain Dew-flavored Cheetos. Your first question probably is, how much caffeine do they have? The answer, we don't know. We also can't answer your other inevitable question, why? We can, however, tell you what they taste like based on an on-the-scene report from the Redditor who shared this marvel with the world. Mountain Dew Cheetos taste like lemon-lime chips. Quote, while they're not as gross as I expected, they certainly aren't enjoyable. Oh my gosh. An Alaska town hasn't had internet service since New Year's Eve. And this is an older story. The story was from January 10th. So by now they probably have their New Year's or their internet service restored. But how did they lose their internet service. Well, in in this particular town, the community of Tanana, uh, it's a tradition to shoot off guns at midnight in the village where the two rivers come together um, on New Year's Eve. But it's all about location, 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 reports the Fairbanks Daily News Minor. This time someone happened to point their guns straight at one of the main fiber optic cable lines. Quote, you can't fix stupid, the owner of Yukon Telephone and Supervisors Cable TV said in summing up the incident. He adds that it was likely a 410-gauge shotgun as he picked up a bunch of empty shells for that type of gun near where the shooter or shooters were standing directly under the cable line. It's unclear whether or not someone was aiming for the box or just happened to hit it. So far, no one has fessed up, and the town was without internet for over a week while the company waited for parts to splice the line together, which would have been another couple days from when this story was published. So if you are celebrating by firing your shotguns up into the air, be careful what you're aiming at. You may knock out internet service to your town. And now you're supposed to just go ahead and move on. So let's go ahead and move on. This story is by Nancy Sheet from NPR.org. The FDA asked for proof 
that antibacterial soaps protect health. The Food and Drug Administration took a step towards restricting the use of triclosan and other antibacterial chemicals widely used in soap, deodorant, cosmetics, and hundreds of other consumer products. The FDA told manufacturers that they would have to prove the chemicals are safe for long-term daily use and that they do a better job of keeping people from getting sick than washing hands with plain soap and water. The agency said so far there is no evidence that antimicrobial soap products keep kids healthier or reduce the spread of colds and flu more than regular soap. The only study showing health benefits in consumer products has been with Total Toothpaste, where triclosan reduced the risk of gingivitis. If manufacturers of other products can't come up with evidence of health benefits, the FDA told the companies in a proposed rule they would need to reformulate or relabel products to keep them on the market. There is some evidence suggesting that widespread use of triclosan, which is used in liquid soaps, and triclocarban, which is used in bar soaps, could lead to the development of germs that are resistant to antibiotics. Other studies have found that exposure to these chemicals disrupts hormone cycles in animals, but it is not known whether they have the same effect in humans. Quote, this is one of those areas where we don't have complete medical information, says Dr. Aaron Blatt, Executive Vice President at Mercy Medical Center in Rockville, Center, New York, and a spokesman for the Infectious Diseases Society of America. Quote, but there really is very little evidence that this is truly going to make any difference with hygiene. So the FDA uh, rolling out or um, at least letting manufacturers know that there are proposed rules to make them change their labeling or take those products out of their soaps um, without any proof that those products are reducing the spread of germs that they're developed to attack. I think you just nailed it. Teens in Denmark claim Wi-Fi routers are no good if you want your plants to grow, and their experiment is getting lots of interest. Natural News points out that there is already research being done to see whether or not the radiation generated by wireless routers is bad for humans. But what about plants? A group of ninth graders in Denmark decided that when their school didn't have the resources to support their experiment using cell phone radiation, they tried out with Wi-Fi routers using plants as the subjects. The students placed six trays of a kind of garden crest seed in a room with no radiation and another set in a room next to two Wi-Fi routers. After 12 days of measuring, observing, weighing, and otherwise watching their plants, the results were in. The students found that the seeds near routers either didn't grow or were dead by the end of the 12-day period, while those in a room free of routers sprouted into healthy plants. The five female students earned top honors in their regional science competition. So clearly this isn't any kind of near-definitive study, but it's interesting uh, to see what results these particular individuals got in their little experiment and definitely opens the door or, or points the way for some additional carefully monitored studies on the subject. Oh, boy, howdy.
in a story from Boing Boing, which quotes uh, Mother Jones' story. Um, Mother Jones has a bunch of details in a story called The Budget Deal is a Big Win for the Pentagon, um, in which they reveal the U.S. government's insanely gigantic military budget. Just a couple of details from that uh, from that story, 70% of the value of the federal government's $1.8 trillion in property, land, and equipment belongs to the Pentagon. The Army uses more than twice as much building space as all the offices in New York City. The Pentagon holds more than 80% of the federal government's inventories, including $6.8 billion of excess, obsolete, or unserviceable items. And the Pentagon operates more than 170 golf courses worldwide. The U.S. spends an insane amount of money on the military, on, in, in many ways, on things that are wasteful and unnecessary um, elements of, of the military branch, and not always on targeted at, at the right things. All when the U.S. does not have a major armed enemy or a direct international military threat. And that's just yeah. the way it is. That is just the way it is. So I watched two new TV series recently, and one of those TV series was called Believe. Uh, Believe is a science fiction fantasy adventure TV series that is broadcasting on NBC. It's a brand new series. Two episodes have been aired, which I did watch. Um, and just a little synopsis of the show. This from Wikipedia. Bo is a young girl who was born with special abilities that she cannot control. And as, as they start evolving... The people who are protecting her must turn to an outsider. This leads them to Tate, a wrongfully convicted death row inmate, whom they break out of prison. Although he is reluctant to take on the role as her protector, the two eventually form a bond that will guide them to helping each other as well as others while staying one step ahead of the evil forces that want the girl. So, as I said, there have been two episodes of this program that have aired so far and uh episode one was just the pilot and episode two was called beginner's luck um i i think the idea and the premise of this series is really really good uh i i like the the whole special powers type of sci-fi programming um especially when people don't always understand and are able to e easily control their powers as they're first learning about them. It is what made Heroes one of my favorite shows ever. Um, and this has a lot of promise, but in the first two episodes, it didn't live up to my expectations. Um, there's some technical issues, in my opinion, uh, with the show. The just the lighting and the camera 
angles, and not even so much the angles, but the lenses used in some scenes have almost a have some barrel distortion. Not not quite fisheye, but just clearly it's like they were in too too small of a space and had to put on too a little bit too wide angle of a lens. And I imagine they know and understand what they're doing and in, intentionally did this for some purpose, but it it didn't fit for me with the scenes and with anything that was going on to try and add add an element to the programming. So I found it just really a lot more distracting. There were at least two or three scenes where it was obvious to me that the the lens used to shoot the scene and the closeness of the person's face just showed this distortion that didn't blend in with what was happening in the series. Um, I'm going to continue to watch because I really want this to to be good. Uh, the actress who plays Bo, the child, is good in the role. The expression of her power seems to be interesting enough. Her powers aren't well defined. She seems to be able to do multiple different things without really understanding how to control what she's doing. Um, a lot of her powers get expressed when she's scared or angry. Uh, so it, it has a lot of potential if, if, it's, if the writing holds up. And so far, it's not possible for me to tell if the writing's going to hold up. Um, I hope it does. Uh, the character of Tate... I haven't gotten, haven't made a connection with him so much in the first two episodes. So they really need to build more of his backstory and they need to make me care about him to care about this program. The other ancillary characters so far also really haven't connected. Um, if they all get killed, you know, in the next episode, I wouldn't miss them. Um, I would look forward to them bringing on some new and interesting characters to replace them. So again, really, really early in the series to have some strong opinion about whether or not this will be a good show. But it's these early episodes where a series really needs to connect you to the characters in order to make you care about the program. And so far, only two episodes in, it hasn't happened yet for the TV series believe, but I do still recommend it. I can't say don't, you know, don't bother with this program based on such a limited amount of episodes so far. So if you like that type of programming, definitely check it out. The second series that I have started watching, which has only aired the pilot so far, is called The Hundred. The Hundred is an American post-apocalyptic drama series that's airing on the CW. And because it's airing on the CW, it has one issue that is common to programming on the CW is they seem to only want to hire young, beautiful actors and actresses, which can work for a lot of programs, and I don't have any problem with that direction, except for when 
it seems that that's the only direction that they're willing to go. So the one flaw, if there is one, is the limited variety of characters that they've introduced so far, as far as who they are and how they look. Um, the premise of this show is, again, from Wikipedia, the series is set 97 years after a devastating nuclear war. The only survivors were residents of space stations orbiting the Earth. The space stations banded together to form a massive station called the Ark. Resources are scarce, and all crimes on the Ark are punishable by death. 100 juvenile residents convicted of what would have been relatively minor crimes and misdemeanors on pre-war Earth are now considered expendable. They weren't put to death immediately, I think because they were juveniles, they were locked up and were set to be put to death on their 18th birthdays. However, they are sent on a mission to test if Earth's surface has become habitable again. So the only episode so far that has aired as I tape this or as I record this is the pilot episode. And that is exactly what happens in the pilot episode. You start to get to know the characters. They are sent down to Earth on a ship. They are being monitored by the people that are up in the Ark. And you start to get to know who's who. You start to connect with the characters there are some twists and turns, um, so I'll try to talk about this in ways that don't give anything away. Um, but, you know, a hundred of these teenagers are sent down to Earth, and you start to get to know about five to ten of them in depth. They have some interesting backgrounds, interesting connections, some with each other, some with who their parents are, um, that if written well and done right is going to make for a really, really interesting series, in my opinion. One of the reasons that I selected this as one of my key shows to watch in the new television series, because there are several sci-fi shows that are out there now, several new ones, and that's one of the genres that I really enjoy the most. Um, but the, I don't know if it's the director, there's people involved in this show that were involved in my favorite show, Eureka. Uh, there are at least some writers um, from Eureka that are involved in The Hundred and the director, Matt Miller, um, who was involved in Eureka, is also involved in the hundred. So flip side to the show Believe, the show The Hundred really has done a good job in only its pilot episode to make me interested in the characters and make me interested in the story and really look forward to the episodes to come. So if that genre sounds interesting to you, check out the hundred on the CW. That people watch it and then it's a thing. Make it a thing. This is also a thing. Um, 
I moved to New Jersey several months ago, and not all that far from me, there is an IKEA store, something that many of you have either enjoyed or gotten lost in or loathed in your neighborhoods uh, much longer than I've had access to one. So this story was kind of interesting because I have gone to that local IKEA and I've actually seen this product on the shelf. He's no Tickle Me Elmo, but a stuffed toy has been flying off the shelves at IKEA stores in Hong Kong. And it's not because it's the it toy of the holiday season. This story's a little bit older. Lufzig, the wolf's name, translates into Cantonese with a very naughty meaning, apparently making him the perfect object for protesters to lob at the chief executive officer of Hong Kong, C.Y. Loom, who some have nicknamed the Wolf. While Lufzig the Wolf seems to just be an innocent type, besides that whole trying to eat Little Red Riding Hood, his name in Cantonese sounds a lot like a profanity that translates to something bad about female genitalia, reports the South China Morning Post. The toy has been selling out at Ikea in Hong Kong, with shoppers lining up to buy it, after an anti-government protester tossed one at Loom over the weekend, according to the BBC. An IKEA Hong Kong spokesman said shoppers were lining up as early as 7 a.m. for Lufzig, and the toy was sold out by 11, but didn't have any comment on the political message some are reading into the stuffed animal. His name is Lufzig wherever he's sold all over the world, so it's not like this is just special to customers in China. Lung has been dubbed the wolf by some in China who see him as cunning, and it sounds like he's had a pretty low popularity ratings since he was appointed by a committee last year to be Hong Kong's chief executive. Any protesters still yearning for Lufzig in China will have to wait for early January 2014 when IKEA says new stock will be in stores. So a story from the holidays, but one I just couldn't pass up sharing because just interesting that this stuffed toy made by Ikea has been selling like crazy in Hong Kong because of its double meaning. So that is going to wrap up this episode of Unrelated Things. You can find out more about Unrelated Things, or you can make a donation at unrelatedthings.net. You can provide feedback at unrelatedthings at gmail.com, and you can follow Unrelated Things on Twitter or on Facebook. Thanks for listening. It's Unrelated Things.